you have your Bibles with you and you want to turn there, we'll be taking some scripture out of the Gospel according to Matthew and uh, verse or chapter 21. And uh, we'll start reading at about verse 33. And, uh, you know, one of the things that occurs to me whenever I look at this particular set of Scripture is uh, how that it is that a lot of times people really take for granted what God's given them. Uh, and, and, and it's easily done, you know, because it's so readily available. And, and, and you know, like I pointed out, uh, you know, as... as uh, everybody here is well aware uh, when that ice storm came through a couple of years ago, uh, we spent a prolonged period of time without, uh, without internet, without electricity, without a lot of the uh, that luxuries that, that we have. You know, of course, for some, uh, electricity is not merely a luxury. It's kind of a requirement to be able to heat their home and things like that. And I had told my daughter-in-law who grew up in a suburb of Philadelphia, and where she lived, I think she said one time in her entire life, she'd had to do without electricity for about two hours. And, you know, so 12 days was a bit much. And, of course, we had electricity in the form of a generator, but we didn't have any Internet or, you know, any of those other creature comforts. And I told her, I said, the thing is, is that we get used to these things. We're not thankful for them. We look around and, and we rest comfortably in our luxury and everything right up until the moment that it's gone. And it's no different than when God provides something for us, blesses us in a particular way, and we get comfortable for that. And we don't really find ourselves thanking Him for it if we're not careful. And, uh, you know, being thankful should be, at, at least at the beginning, a, a, a deliberate thing, a, a very willful thing to be thankful uh, it's no different than, and I, I try to do this, you know, when I'm at the grocery store shopping and uh, I'll buy this food. A lot of times I'll think, you know, this food didn't materialize here. It didn't grow right here. It, somebody put work into this. Energy was put into this and that then it came to this particular instance and then I have the ability to actually purchase this and get benefit from it. And a lot of times, though, we discount the blessings of God because we don't really consider, uh, you know, where that it is that they come from. And so we're going to start reading in verse 33 of Matthew chapter 21. And, uh, you know, prior to this, Jesus had told them a, a, another parable about two sons. The one said he was going to go into the vineyard uh, and, and didn't. And the one said, I won't go, but did, you know, and, and, and how that it is that it's better how we end up than it is how we start out. And, uh, so he continues on in this parable in verse 33, it says here, another parable, there was a certain householder, which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and dig the wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. So to, just to kind of set the scene of this, this was apparently a wealthy man who uh, he, he laid out this vineyard, he built it up, he put all the effort and all the risk was his. All of the difficulty uh, uh, was on him and he made this thing to be and then he gave it to the husbandman. Essentially he said, now you're going to work this, you're going to take care of it and, and, and you're going to make it do well. Uh, and then we see now exactly how that they handled it. It says, because in verse 34, and when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandman.
that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. In verse 38, But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? Now when Jesus is talking, he's talking to a group of Pharisees that if you were to back all the way up uh, to around verse 25, that they had already asked Jesus, they said, now Jesus, uh, uh, will you tell us by what authority you're working these miracles and you're doing all of these things? Uh, Now if you were to read in the Gospel according to John, Jesus at one point told them, look, if you don't believe me because of what I'm saying, believe me because of the very work's sake. Just look at what I'm doing and you'll know uh, who I am. And in another place he told he said, Abraham, look forward to my day. Uh, uh, and if you were truly children of Abraham, you also would rejoice uh, at my coming. Uh, uh, but then they asked him this, and Jesus told him, said, well, let me ask you a question first. Uh, and he asked him about John the Baptist's baptism. Uh, and they refused to answer. And Jesus said, then I'm not going to answer you either. Uh, but here now, he's getting down to the brass tacks, and he begins to tell them, uh, God has made something good. Uh, he set something out in this world. Uh, he's planted this vineyard. He's created these things. And every good thing comes from God. Make no mistake. All the good that exists in this world is because of the presence of the Most High God. And all of the evil is because of people's rejection and refusal and turning away. They're looking around and they're saying, I'm in control. I can do this myself. I'm in charge. And all we are called to be is stewards over everything that's been given us that a lot of times when we don't really find ourselves thankful, I think it's because that we attribute it to ourselves uh, and we don't go around uh, uh, and, and, and on Thanksgiving, at least I hope not, we're not thanking ourselves. Uh, oh, I'm thankful for me. I'm such a good guy. I'm such a great person and I've done all these things uh, that rather if we're thankful, uh, we're thankful to the one that sends the sun. Uh, we're thankful to the one that brings the rain. Uh, because I can tell you, if you look around at this world uh, and you look at all all of the luxuries and things that people have. When those stop, if everything we know collapses as it is, that the most important thing will be our ability to feed ourselves. And how, how, how infrequently that people look around nowadays and say, you know what? God, I'm thankful that I have some food to put in my body. I've remembered several times, you know, that I'd get hit with an unexpected expense and I would get quarrelsome because I had to pay that money out. And then I had to stop myself and say, But praise be unto God that I had the money to pay it. Uh, You know, we don't like uh, giving out, but it's not ours to begin with. Uh, And what happened was now this man uh, that Jesus mentioned in this parable, he planted this vineyard. Uh, He set it up for success. Uh, And then what he wanted uh, was some of the fruit from his 
vineyard. But the husbandman looked around and said, no, it's not his. He's not even here. It's ours. And that's the way that the Pharisees had gotten prior to the time of John the Baptist. There was what is known as a silent time. 450 years there were no prophets. There was no divine revelation from God. And the Pharisees rose out of that. And they began to go about the land acting in a form of godliness. But their heart was far from God. And so they began to take people in the way Jesus says it later on. is He said, not only would you not enter in yourselves but you'll also stop those that would and you won't help and you won't be uh, merciful you won't exercise good judgment you have no faith Uh, and and it says now that when uh, that the the husband or the main guy of the vineyard would send his servants uh, they'd take them and beat them and throw them out uh, kill them, do whatever uh, because they viewed it as their own And I think about that and I think what Jesus is getting at here is our life is not our own. It's not ours. And we're called to be fruit-bearing Christians. And it's so easy a lot of times to just look around and say, well, I'm diligently waiting on the Lord. Well, what are you doing while you're waiting? we got to be careful because complacency a lot of times when we have peace, a lot of times people are defeated more by peace than they are by controversy. Because they sit back just like the man that Jesus told the parable about that uh, looked around and his land brought forth plentifully. And he looked around and said, you know what, it's time to take my ease. Uh, He said, I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger barns. Uh, And he never once considered uh, that there was something after this life. Uh, And what Jesus was trying to get people prepared for uh, was not for this life, uh, but for that which is to come. Uh, The point at which uh, that we would stand before a holy God uh, and give an account uh, of the life that we've lived uh, and be able to stand and say, look, uh, I'm in perfect but I claim the blood I'm not the best but your son was and I know that I won't make it to heaven except by his blood shed for me and it says now that after all of this and and the the men that he sent to him the servants uh, uh, were compared to the prophets and how it was Jesus stood over the city of Jerusalem and wept and said that he told him, you've killed the prophets and you've transgressed the law of God. He said, how oft would I have gathered you like little chicks under my wing and protected you? And he said, but ye would not. And I think that can be said about a great many people nowadays. That a lot of times they suffer because they want to exist outside the will of God and then then want to blame God for their own suffering. And so Jesus said now that they took these servants and they cast them out, they killed them, they beat them, and they did all these things to them. That if you look in the book of Hebrews, you'll find that the writer of Hebrews goes through a rather long list and he refers to the ones that were beaten and stoned and sawn asunder. He said, of whom the world was not worthy I believe Jesus is talking about those here but then he said lastly this owner this householder of the vineyard he said I'll send my son surely they'll listen to him he comes with my authority and my power and you know I think about that a lot you know when my kids were little that if one of them looked at the other one and gave the other one a command it didn't go over well they would look at him like, you're not my boss. I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to do what you tell me to do. 
And then all that it would take is for them coming back. They won't do it. If I told them and I said, did you tell them I said? Did you tell them that it's not you telling them, but it's me? And they would go back. Daddy said. And then suddenly that would motivate them a little bit better. And the husbandmen, when they see the son coming, no, they look around and they say, if we do away with him, there'll be nobody to inherit this. And it'll be ours forever. But you know, Jesus said that it's the meek that shall inherit the earth. Not the ones that rise up in their own strength, but rather the ones that trust God. The the ones that look around and say, I'm not strong enough, but God is. They look around and say, I can do nothing except God allow me to do this. And so that when this son came, they took him. They dragged him out of the vineyard. And don't make no, make no mistake, church. Do you remember where that it was that they found Jesus when they came? They found him in a garden. They took him out. They led him to the top of a hill. They sacrificed him there in the name of the Most High God that His blood was shed. But they thought that they were doing a good thing. And they were, but their intention was all wrong. You see that they didn't own this. We don't own this world. There isn't a thing that we have that money can't buy and death can't take away. And you've got to remember every single day of your life, it's all in God's hand. We don't own a thing. We can't predict what comes next. But we can trust the one who has the power over life and death itself. Because how easy is it to get up every day And not to consider, you know what, God, I wouldn't even be able to get out of this bed if it wasn't for you. I wouldn't have woke up this morning. True thanksgiving really is found in the little things that add up to big things. And you see, the mentality of our Western society now, you know, and a lot of people, and I don't want to get too politically motivated or anything like that, but a lot of people talk about rampant consumerism. And I was thinking about that term actually when I was on my way home from work Friday. Rampant consumerism. and What it means to consume something. It means to use it, to use it up. To use it for your own pleasure. To use it for your own desires. And see, God put man in this world that He would subdue it. That He would take care of it. That He would be a steward over it and attend to it. God put Adam and Eve there in a garden and He told them, look, you can eat of anything you want to. Just this one thing lies outside of my permission for you to be able to take and eat thereof. And maybe they held on for a while. You know, it's not recorded how long that they were there in the garden before that they were cast out. But there come a day when that they transgressed the law of God. Prior to that, there was one law and that was that they weren't to eat of the knowledge or eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were able to eat freely of the tree of life and everything else in the garden. But that one, but when they ate of that, everything else became forbidden to them. It says after that they disobeyed God, they refused to believe God, they were driven from the garden. And let's make no mistake, that doesn't mean He put them in a car. It means they were forced out, forced to leave. And I've thought a lot about how that Adam, you know, during his lifetime, his lifetime, if you read that, that genealogy that, that, that it, most people are inclined to skip there in Genesis, 
And when it talks about, you know, after the whole deal with Cain and Abel, and it begins to talk about Seth and, and, and him begetting his son Enosh, and uh, how that it goes right on down, all the way down from, uh, uh, to Noah, that everybody who lived after that, that's named there, their life overlapped with Noah's, or Abel, Adam's significantly. That he was able, he was a first hand witness to the goodness of God. That he was able to tell them. Maybe he come with, with tears in his eyes and apologizing. And saying, we had it so good. That garden, it was never too hot, it was never too cold. Maybe he'd come by somebody busting up the ground and having to sow seed. And looked at him and said, I'm sorry. I messed up. But I believe also that God still dealt with him and spoke with him and ministered to him. And I believe that he said, but you know, God has a plan. There's hope. Uh, see, you see, you lost all your hope in me. I messed it up. I disobeyed. But there's going to come one who's going to obey the Son. He's going to come into this world and He's going to come meek and mild and He's going to deal with this thing that we know to be death. That we know because, you see, Adam's first taste of death wasn't for himself. It was his son. His first taste of death was his own son dying, not him. I don't know about you all, but I... I when I think about my own death, I don't get too upset. When I think about my son or my daughters, or my wife, my loved ones, man, that stings. That hurts. That separation. And I think about that. That was Adam's first taste of it. He might have said, well, it don't seem like a big deal. I've lived quite a long time. But not his son. Not Abel. He didn't live that long. And you see that he might have talked right on down. <laughs> and he talked to Enoch. He talked to, uh, with Methuselah. He was able to visit with him. They were his direct descendants. Uh, he lived to be 930 some odd years old. Uh, uh, but then the time came around when there was a man who had never met Adam. A man by the name of Noah. By my count, about the year that Adam died, it was around the same time that Noah was born. And he never knew him. He never had that first-hand account. Now, it was second-hand account. Uh, but it was uh, that Noah hearkened unto uh, what he'd heard about God. It said that he found grace uh, in the sight of God. Uh, he was perfect in his generation. Uh, now, does that mean that he was completely without sin? No. Uh, but he had a heart for God. Uh, and he trusted Him. And he looked around and said, God, all that is mine is in Your hand. Because here's the thing that occurs to me. When Noah went onto that ark, he was bankrupt. He was broke. He was an outcast in society. He was the minority by a large margin. He was not well liked. And he was not well listened to. And he spent every dime that he had and everything that he had and all of the effort when he went onto that ark. And still it hadn't rained and the waters of the deep weren't broken up. But he trusted God. And you see, the problem with these men mentioned in this parable and the Pharisees and people of this world now, uh, they don't trust God. Uh, they trust in themselves. They trust uh, that the power grid is going to continue functioning just like it always has. Uh, they trust uh, that whenever they need something, they're going to be able to go down to the Walmart and buy it uh, rather than looking around and saying, if God doesn't bless it, uh, we won't have it. Uh, if God doesn't take care of us, uh, we're not going to survive. 
Because here in a couple of months, we've got a holiday coming up called Thanksgiving. Whereas most people around here know it as deer season. And that's all they care about. And I've heard people say, I hate Thanksgiving. And I say, I love it. I like it a lot. Not because of the food. Now that's a bonus. I'm not a big football watcher, but I know some people enjoy that. I don't hunt, and I know they enjoy that too. But what I find myself looking around is it's hard to deny that there is a living God on Thanksgiving. It's hard to look around and say, well, I'm thankful to the President of the United States. No, sir. I, I, I pray for him regularly, but as far as me subsisting and surviving, it's not because of him. And it's not because of me. Now I may be able to go out and work. These hands may be able to accomplish a few things. I might have some experience and knowledge in my head. But without God allowing this heart to keep beating, I can't put any of that to work. That I have to look around and say, God, I know that you are the one and the only. And besides you, there is no other. And while our society, you know, and I, I've said uh, many times over the years, if I was going to be an atheist, I'd be a good one. I'd refuse to take Thanksgiving off and Christmas and Easter or Good Friday. I would refuse to take those days off because I don't believe in the God that they represent. But you'd have a hard time convincing me that there's anybody that's really and truly an atheist. It is hardwired into man that there is something after this life and that there is a Creator. I had the occasion in talking with some students and they'd asked a couple of questions that uh, I, I may get in hot water for what I said, but I told them, I said, the thing is, the science explains things only back so far. And one of the students said, well, what do you mean? And I said, we still don't know what kicked everything off. We still don't know what caused the Big Bang. We still don't know. Scientifically speaking, we can't explain it. And one of them said, well... What do you think it is, Mr. Williams? I said, well, I, I know what it is. I don't just think this. I believe it with every fiber of my being. And they said, well, will you tell us? And I said, just read the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And I seen one of them write it down. I thought, well, I guess I can't get in trouble for that. I just told them to go read it. They don't have to. But, I, I, you know, I, I've thought about that a lot because... We look around at this world and look and say, man, it's beautiful and it's wonderful and all of these things that have been made. And when I read the book of Genesis, you know, the thing that has occurred to me recently was that song that I sung a lot when I was a little kid, He's Still Working on Me. And I think I missed the significance of it. You know, the, the writer of the song, I have no idea who it was, says that it took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, Jupiter and Mars and all this. He says, but He's still working on me. <laughs> all these big things that we can't comprehend. We can't even really understand how big the planet Jupiter is. We can't understand how vast even our own local solar system is, much less the universe. And yet, He's still... He, he finished with that. It's done. But He's still working on us. And He's still working with us. That's why we're here today, or at least I hope it is, that God, I know there are things that I've not got right. And God, I need, I need instruction. I need help. I need You to tell me what I've messed up. You know, that's the thing that occurs to me that in a polite society, people won't tell you when you've done something wrong. They'll just write you off. 
If they don't like your opinion, they won't say, hey, I don't appreciate that. Or can we discuss this? They'll just say, I'm done talking to you. You're unfriended on Facebook. I'm going to block your cell phone number. Never once looking around saying, hey, maybe you need to think about this in a different way. And a friend will do that. A true friend will do that. And you see, what better friend do we have than in Jesus? When we mess up, you know the Apostle Paul when he was talking to Timothy? When he wrote that letter to him? There were three things that he told him to do when it came to preaching. He said to rebuke, reprove, and encourage. Now I'll be the first to tell you as a minister and as a pastor, I love preaching an encouraging message. I really do. I love preaching a reproving message. That's like kind of testing you, seeing where you're at. But rebuking, it's when somebody's done something wrong, you've got to get on to them. That's hard to do. You know, it's, it's been real easy whenever I'd go to somebody else's church and the Lord would lay something on me that was a rebuke for a congregation that I didn't know a soul there. That's a lot easier. It's a lot harder when it's my own children, my own spouse. Or when one of them has to enlighten me when I've messed up somewhere. But you see, this word, it cuts going both ways. And we may read this and say, well, I'm sure glad that I'm not like those husbandmen. You better be careful. Because any time that we withhold what we have from God and not give Him His due, and don't think for a second that I'm preaching about paying tithes or putting money in the offering or anything like that, but I'm saying don't compartmentalize your life and say, now God, don't go in there. God, don't worry about this. This is mine, God. I don't want you messing with that. I got that myself. Any man that thinks he stands should take heed lest he fall. And when I say that, I have to say it more to me than I do you because I don't know you like I know me. And you see, when we get into this Word and we study it, we better be looking for encouragement. I think we resort to that often. You ever had that happen? You do that thing where you throw your Bible up and say, God, show me something. You throw your Bible open to a random place and maybe it's the 23rd Psalm. Oh, thank you, Lord, for blessing me. Another time... You throw it open and maybe it's Isaiah 53. Praise the Lord for that uh, wounded Savior for me. Then you throw it open maybe to the book of Job. Oh, wait a minute now. That was a misfire. Let me try again. Or you throw it open into the book of Lamentations. Or the book of Jeremiah where it is that the people are being rebuked and rebuked hard. Because their heart is far from God. They love Him with their lips. Their heart's far from Him. You see, a lot of times if we're not Careful, diligent, continual in prayer, continual in the study of God's Word, showing up at the house of the Lord, trusting Him daily, and feeding ourselves with His Word daily. I can tell you that it's real easy to look around and say, no, this is mine. Just like these husbandmen did. They killed His servants. and They killed His son. And then Jesus ends it with a question. It says, when the Lord therefore... When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, what will He do unto those husbandmen? Because the problem of this world right now is, is they preach heaven, but no hell. There's no negative outcome. Because people don't like that. It upsets them. They don't want to hear about it. They don't want to hear that they've done something wrong. 
I can tell you this, you can tell somebody that they've done something right when they haven't. And, and, and the evidence that I've seen, you know, and I, I was dumbfounded by this years ago when that show American Idol was just so big. There would be people get up there and sing who couldn't sing a lick. Or as we'd say, couldn't carry a tune in a water bucket. And I found myself sitting there thinking, had people been telling them that they were really good? Had people deceived them? Was it a plot against them or was it politeness? Now, I'm not saying to go around and be rude to people or anything like that. But church, it's time to start calling sin what it is. And it's sin. It's going to send people to hell. And whether it's in the life of a Christian or somebody who's never believed, sin is never to be left alone. It is to be ferreted out and to be dealt with. Otherwise, when the Lord comes back, they will find that it was people who were saying yea and amen to the crucified Christ, but not the resurrected Messiah. And that's a problem. Because sin is sin. And I can tell you that it's real easy talking to a group of people as a Christian, especially in this day and time, about homosexuality or transgenderism or all these things. And we begin to equivocate on it. And we say, well, you know, I'm sure that uh, the homosexual is a good person. And I'm, I, you know, I'm sure that this, and you talk about their character and everything else. Do we do that for an adulterer? Or a thief or a murderer? Oh, I'm sure that guy that killed somebody had a good reason for doing that. I'm sure deep down they're a good person. You see how wrong that is to equivocate on sin? Sin is sin. And the only way to deal with sin, the only way to do away with it, is not by social justice, but rather by the grace of Jesus Christ. And I've had people ask me, will homosexuality send me to hell? And I've told them, yes, it will. Just the same as adultery, or lying, or killing, or having idol gods, or not remembering the Sabbath to keep it holy. All of those others will too. But you'll have adulterers who will say, well, I'm better than the homosexual. You'll have an adulterer who will look around and say, I'm better than the murderer. No, you're not. Guilty of one, guilty of them all. Now, Paul would have addressed that and he would have said, then does that mean if you're guilty of one, you should just do all the others? To borrow from his phraseology, God forbid that you would do that. But rather... We do what we can. We hedge ourselves about that we might not sin against Him. How does one manage that? By studying the Word of God. Trusting Him daily. These men had no regard for their Lord when He had given them everything they had. Has God given you everything that you have? Shall we not regard Him daily? Not just in the big things, in the small things, and everything in between. Because his broken son, you know, and, and I could attempt to paint you a picture that would maybe bring tears to your eyes, but you think about the situation that Jesus was in when he went there to the cross, he was all alone. Okay? They beat him to a hideous mess before he ever hung on the cross. They, they scourged him as it was said. So much so that he wasn't even able to carry his own cross up the hill. They made another man carry it for him. And they hanged him there. Stripped him down naked. You see, that's the thing they don't depict in a lot of pictures for politeness. And I understand that for decency. 
But he was naked before them, laid bare. He was hungry, he was thirsty, he was tired, bones, shoulders out of socket, hung there having been crowned but with thorns. They made fun of him, they worshipped him in jest. And it's really no different than the way people act by Christ now. They, there are many that worship him in jest. They don't mean it. They don't trust him. But you see, all that it takes, all that it takes for a person to be saved is to acknowledge him as Lord over your life. And that's it. A lot of people want to overcomplicate these things. I've even heard Christian people say, well, now you've got to do this and do this and do this. Look, it's believe on him. They say, well, what about those other details? The Holy Spirit will help you get those sorted out. But in order for a person to be saved, they have to acknowledge their sin and that Jesus Christ can take care of it. That's it. These husbandmen, they didn't acknowledge their sin. They didn't feel that they had done anything wrong. And in fact, they thought it would benefit them to kill him, to kill this son. And so there does come a day of reckoning for everyone. You know, I, I, I'm not one that preaches out of the book of Revelation a whole lot. I can tell you this. That in the end, those that are outside the mercy that comes only through and by the blood of Jesus Christ, their end is bad. Their end is worse than anybody would ever want to have happen to anyone else, much less themselves. But I believe that if we could peer into hell, we would everyone weep for those that are there and look and be surprised at some that ended up there because we thought they were good people. But apart from Jesus Christ, the only thing that's left in eternity is hell. But in Jesus Christ, we not only avoid hell, but we get heaven too. God has given us so many gifts, but the greatest one that He gave us of all is His Son that He would come into this world and die for our sins. And if that doesn't make you at least sit up a little bit straighter and try to walk just a little bit better before the Lord, then I don't know what will. Let's all stand and get a song.